tonight. We'll begin in verses 12 and 13 in our scripture reading and back up and cover from verse 1 down through. Isaiah 27. Once you found that, if you're able to, if you would stand for the reading of God's word. Look with me at verse 12 and 13. It says, And it shall come to pass in that day that the Lord shall break off from the channel of the river unto the stream of Egypt. And ye shall be gathered one by one, O ye children of Israel. And it shall come to pass in that day that the great trumpet shall be blown. And they shall come which were ready to perish in the land of Assyria and the outcasts in the land of Egypt. And shall worship the Lord in the holy mount at Jerusalem. Title of the sermon is already up there on the screen. Listen for the trumpet. Jesus is coming. And uh, we th- there's a double meaning in that title. There's the Gentile meaning. That's the one we think of, right? The rapture. The trumpet's going to sound. We're going to look at that toward the end of the message. But this trumpet tearing that will take place uh, is meant for the Jews. And Isaiah 27 is is a Jewish passage. So. We're going to pull some applications out for us Gentile folk tonight, uh, but the uh, interpretation of the passage is Jewish. Let's pray tonight. Lord, would you guide and direct this evening? Uh, Lord, give me um, the health I need to get through this message, and uh, Lord, uh, clarity of, of mind, focus. Lord, it's not about me. It's about you and your word. And so at the end, Lord, we pray that um, you would speak through my vocal cords and across my lips, what you want each one to hear. Lord, um, there's two elements to every message. There's the speaker and, and then there's the listener. And Lord, if uh, a perfect message is spoken, but it falls on deaf ears, it's still all a waste. And so Lord, help each one here to uh, tune their ears and their heart to hear from you tonight, God. Nobody gets in their vehicle and drives to church on Wednesday night just to fulfill a religious obligation. Sometimes we do that on Sunday morning, but never on a Wednesday evening. People that are here are here because they love you and they're wanting something from your word. So help us, Lord, to leave here with our cup full. May we not hear from a pastor, but, Lord, may we hear from the good shepherd, the pastor in heaven. Lord Jesus, minister to us tonight in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Well, we are looking at Isaiah and um, chapter by chapter, verse by verse, and we spent quite a bit of time looking at the 11 woes, the 11 burdens laid out to the 11 different nations. And uh, then it went from the judgment of, uh, of those nations in their current day to a prophetic in the day of the Lord in chapters 25, or 24, 25, 26, and 27. And we make our way to chapter 27 this evening, and we see that, yes, this is still talking about the day of the Lord. Now, just a little hint for you, as you're reading through the Old Testament, anytime you see the phrase, day of the Lord, or that day of the Lord, or the day of the Lord, what you're seeing is a reference to the tribulation, and you're seeing a reference to the millennial kingdom, somewhere in that window. It is interesting that in the Jewish culture, the day starts, a new day starts at 6 o'clock in the evening hour time. 
It starts as the sun is going down, and it completes the next day. And watch this. Uh, the, the day of the Lord begins with the sun going down the tribulation. And then uh, comes up the next day on the end of that seven year, seven year of tribulation. In a thousand years, Jesus will rule and reign. And uh, you'll, have the, you'll have the night gone and the day will shine bright in the day of the Lord. It is a reference to the seven year tribulation, the, the, the 6 p.m. start, the, the sun going down, the, the wrath, the pain, the hurt. And then on the heels of that, as the dawn of a new day would approach, Jesus arrives on the eastern sky and uh, Jesus sets up rule and reign in Jerusalem. Listen for the trumpet. Jesus is coming. There's going to be a day where the trumpeteers make the announcement with their trumpets that King Jesus is ruling and reigning in Jerusalem. We'll see how this was foreshadowed in the Old Testament way back in Numbers 10 as we get uh, toward the end of the message. We'll see how that uh, this idea of sounding a trumpet for the joy of the millennia, uh, uh, the millennial reign began way, way, way back in the inception uh, or toward the beginning of Israel's history and will one day be realized. Let's jump in tonight to verse number one. Let me give you three thoughts on this idea of listen for the trumpet. Jesus is coming. Point number one, thought number one. Notice Israel's villain conquered Israel's villain conquered. Now, uh, I use a um, a text app when I'm uh, typing out my outline and it doesn't give me the squiggly line. How many of you when you're typing, you enjoy the squiggly line to tell you when you've got a word misspelled? How many of you are not great spellers and you enjoy that feature, okay? Um, uh, so this does not underline my misspellings. I typed out the word villain and I started to wonder if I had spelled villain right. So I had to open up a web browser to see if I had gotten it right. Sure enough, I had gotten it right. V-I-L-L-A-I-N. Israel's villain conquered, right? And so who is Israel's villain? Now, this is interesting. Israel's villain is our villain. It is Satan himself. Leviathan, the dragon, the devil. Look at verse number one. Look at verse number one. In that day of the Lord... With his sore and great and strong sword shall punish Leviathan, the piercing servant, even Leviathan, that crooked serpent, and he shall slay the dragon that is in the sea. He shall slay the dragon that is in the sea. Now, Leviathan is um, the famous dragon that God references in the book of Job. I think it's Job chapter 41 or 42. Uh, God is telling Job who made Leviathan. And he's speaking about a, a, an actual dragon there. Um, you say, did dragons exist? Yes. By the way, for those of you who may not know, the term dinosaur, the term dinosaur came around or became a, a common word in the late 1890s, early 1900s. And um, before that, the word dinosaur did not exist. The word dragon existed. Did you know that humans and dragons, uh, humans and dinosaurs coexisted long, long, long ago? And uh, Noah would have taken two dinosaurs onto the ark. You say, how did he fit two dinosaurs on the ark? Well, he didn't take the grown-up ones. He took the baby ones. You know, you can get baby dinosaurs on an ark. And uh, after the uh, flood, the oxygen content on the earth had changed and dinosaurs with their lung capacity, in my opinion, weren't able to 
to, 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 to handle it. And so dinosaurs became extinct. But there was a day where dragons walked this earth. There was a day where Leviathan, uh, which is a synonym for dragon, would have existed. And Satan is compared to three animals in the Bible. How many of you know what those three animals are? How many know what one of those animals? Brother John? What's that? An ox. Okay, well, four. I, didn't, I forgot about the ox, okay? Um, the other brother, John? Serpent, okay. Uh, one we're looking at here in our passage would be what? A dragon. And there's a fourth one. Brother Kyle, you know? Lion. There you go. The lion, right? He walketh about as a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour, right? And so you have those... I was going to say three, but Brother John reminded me of the ox. The four animals that Satan is compared to, he is compared to a dragon. Look at how he's described here. Let me give you letter A and a B. Notice letter A, the wickedness of Satan. Look back at uh, verse number one. It says, In that day, the Lord with his sore and great and strong sword shall punish Leviathan. Look here how he's described. The piercing serpent. Boy, he has pierced our society. With sin, has he not? Even Leviathan, that crooked serpent, that crooked serpent, and he shall slay the dragon that is in the sea. He's labeled as a piercing serpent. He's labeled as a crooked serpent. Take your Bibles over to Revelation chapter 12 and look with me at verse number 7. Revelation chapter 12, and we'll see him labeled as a dragon. Leviathan, or as a dragon, there in the book of Revelation. Look at verse number 7, Revelation 12. It says, And there was war in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon, and the dragon fought, and his angels, and prevailed not, neither was their place found any more in heaven. And the great dragon was cast out, that old serpent called the devil. And Satan, which deceiveth the whole world, he was cast out into the earth, and his angels were cast out with him. Look down at Revelation 13, and look at verse number 2. The Bible says, And the beast which I saw was likened to a leopard, and his feet uh, were as the feet of a bear, and his mouth as the mouth of a lion and the dragon, speaking of Satan, the dragon gave him his power and his seat and great authority. Now, we've talked about how uh, this is going to go down, uh, but uh, Satan is going to be in heaven. He's going to be accusing the brethren at the judgment seat of Christ. Now, watch this. The next event on the, uh, the, the calendar, the prophetic calendar, in my strong opinion, is the rapture of the church. The church is taken to heaven. The tribulation kicks off here on earth, the seven-year tribulation. During the first three and one-half uh, years of the tribulation uh, uh, here on earth, in heaven, we're going to be going through the judgment seat of Christ. All of those that are saved will stand before the Lord and will give an account for how they lived for Christ uh, uh, while they were here on earth. And who will be present in heaven uh, at the judgment seat of Christ? Well, Satan will be present in heaven at the judgment seat of Christ. Why? Because the Bible says he is 
the accuser of the brethren. And Jesus is our advocate. He is our attorney. He is our mediator between God and man. And so at the judgment seat, you will be called before God. And Satan will stand there and say, oh, I've got a list of wrongdoings that Jason did or that Angela did or uh, that uh, that uh, uh, Melba did, right? Or Sean didn't do anything wrong. So I don't have to worry about him. But uh, we got this long list of all these wrongdoings that all of these people did. And, and, and I, look, I had a witnesses there and I've got the list. And Jesus will stand next to us and say, it's all under the blood. It's all forgiven. It's, it's all gone. Amen? Amen. Now, someone wants in on this message tonight. They're trying to call in to hear it. Tell them they can just hop on the YouTube and watch it that way. Um, uh, but uh, listen, uh, after three and a half years... All of the church, will, the church age saints, will have had their chance before God, and Satan will have had his chance to accuse, and the accuser of the brethren, Satan, right here in Revelation 12, we looked at it a moment ago, he'll be thrown out of heaven. And at the three and a half year mark, he'll come back to earth. And what, we, what will he do? He'll join forces with the Antichrist, who he had left in charge on earth. And for three and a half years, they will persecute together uh, the Jews. All over the world, the wickedness of Satan. Turn over to John chapter number 8 and look at verse number 44. John, these are, this, this is a strong, strong verse in Scripture. One where uh, Jesus just doesn't hold back. He tells the Pharisees exactly what he thinks about them, and he tells them where he thinks they came from. Um, I don't know if he goes as far as telling them where he thinks they're going, but he tells them where they came from. Look at John chapter 8, and look at verse number 44, the wickedness of Satan, that, that serpent, the devil. It says, ye are of your father, the devil, and the lust of your father ye will do. Now look at the description of Satan here. He was a murderer from the beginning and abode not in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he speaketh a lie, he speaketh of his own, for he is a liar and the father of it. He is a liar and the father of it. By the way, when there are divisions between us as brethren, we need to be reminded who the enemy is. It's Satan. Satan is, uh, he's, he's piercing, he's deceptive, he's a liar, he's looking to divide and conquer, divide and conquer. And I, for one, am not a fan of Satan getting between me and anyone else who's a brother or sister in Christ and letting him divide and conquer. Listen, we're all on the same team. Satan is the enemy and his wickedness is the enemy and we don't need to lock shoulders. We need to lock arms and remember who the, who, who the villain is. The villain is the devil, and he is going to be conquered. We see the wickedness of Satan. Let her be noticed the weapon of Christ. Go back to, um, uh, go back to um, Isaiah chapter number 27. Look back with me at verse number 1. Isaiah 27 verse 1. The Bible says, In that day the Lord with his sore and great and strong... Look here. Look at what he uses. Sore and great and strong sword. Sword shall... Punish Leviathan, the piercing servant, even Leviathan, the crooked servant, and he shall slay the dragon that is in the sea. He's going to slay the dragon that is in the sea. Now, are we biblical literalists or do we think that this is figurative speech? Is Jesus going to use a literal sword to defeat Satan and his army or is this just a metaphor? 
Well, let's turn over to Revelation and let's see what the Word of God has to say about the Word of God. Revelation chapter number 19. Revelation 19. All right. Um, I, I am a literalist to a fault, if that's possible. I take the Bible very, very literally, unless it is obvious that the Bible is uh, speaking in metaphorical terms or exaggeratory terms. Uh, Look at Revelation chapter 19 and look at verse number 15. Here we find the passage about Jesus coming out of heaven at the end of the tribulation and he's going to fight the enemies of Satan and the Antichrist. All right. Now, for you at home, we're just going to read verse 15. But for everyone else, let's back up a little bit. All right. Uh, Let's jump back to verse number 11. All right. It says, and I saw heaven opened. And behold, a white horse, and he that sat upon him was called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he doth judge and make war. His eyes, so this is a description of the visage or countenance appearance of Jesus. His eyes were as a flame of fire. Try to picture this in your head. And on his head was many, uh, were many crowns, and he had a name written that no man knew but he himself. And he was clothed with a vesture dipped in blood. And his name is what? The Word of God. The Word of God. Now let me pause here. The Word of God is a powerful, powerful thing. It was the Word of God that created the heaven and earth. Right? Created all of that we see in here. You go back through the six-day account of creation in Genesis 1. God spoke the world into existence with his words. John chapter 1 begins by telling us that the Word, capital W, Word, was there when the world was spoken in existence with words, with words. It was God the Father using his words to speak the Word, Jesus, to use the Word to bring all of this into existence. Uh, If God's words are powerful enough to create uh, the heaven and the earth, and, and God's words are powerful enough to raise the dead back to life. See the story in John 11 with Lazarus. Then God's words can do what we're about to read. Now, uh, verse 13 says that his name is the word of God. Jesus is the living word of God. The, what you hold in your hands right now is the written word of God. Look at verse 14. And the armies which were in heaven, that's us, the church, followed him upon white horses, clothed in fine linen, white and clean. And out of his mouth goeth a sharp sword, that with it he should smite the nations, and he shall rule them with a rod of iron. And he treadeth the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. Are you picturing this uh, showdown in the, in the valley of Megiddo? The battle of Armageddon. Uh, Jesus shows up. We're his army. But you know what? We're not going to do much. We're going to spectate. Some of you ladies are afraid to ride a horse. Some of you men are afraid to ride a horse. Amen. Forget the ladies. Um, uh, Others are afraid of war and bloodshed. We're not going to have to do much. Jesus is going to open his mouth. Swords are going to do this. And they're going to pierce the heart of every enemy And boom, they're going to drop dead. And blood is going to fill the valley of Megiddo up to the horse's bridle. Look uh, look with me at chapter 20 
And look at verse number 1, chapter 20, verse number 1. It says, And I saw an angel come down from heaven, having the key of the bottomless pit and a great chain in his hand. And he, uh, and he laid hold on the dragon, that old serpent, which is the devil, and Satan, and bound him a thousand years, and cast him into the bottomless pit, and shut him up, and set a seal upon him, that he should deceive the nations no more till the thousand years should be fulfilled. And after that... He must be loosed a little season. So this sword spoken of in Isaiah 27, it is not some metaphorical figurative sword. No, no, no. The mouth of Jesus Christ will come open and swords, literal swords will come flying out of his mouth, defeat the armies of Satan and even defeat Satan himself before he's cast into hell. Um, uh, By the way, the one who's been persecuting Israel, the villain persecuting Israel, the last three and a half years of the tribulation will be conquered by the weapon of Christ. The wickedness of Satan will be put to rest by the weapon of Christ. Strength, uh, peace through strength, peace through strength. Israel's villain conquered. Notice number two, Israel's vineyard keeper. Israel's vineyard keeper. Go back with me to um, uh, Isaiah chapter 27. We're going to switch gears a little bit away from Satan and talk more about Israel uh, for a little bit, make some applications to us in the church age. Let me give you an A, B, and a C here. Notice letter A, a productive vineyard, a productive vineyard. Look down at verse number 2, Isaiah 27, and look at verse number 2. The Bible says, In that day sing ye unto her a vineyard of red wine. All right, a vineyard of red wine. Now, you see that term red wine? Red wine is a sign of a vineyard that is flowing and doing well and is highly productive. This is a vineyard that is producing a lot of fruit uh, in order for wine to be made and wine to flow. And by the way, when you see the word wine in the Bible, I know we're Baptists and we're afraid of the word wine. You don't need to be afraid of the word wine, okay? Um, uh, uh, the word wine, all it means is vine juice. That's it. It doesn't have to mean an intoxicating beverage, all right? How many of you, uh, society has us trained that when we hear the word wine, we think of an intoxicating beverage. And the reason why that becomes a problem is the Bible says we're not to be drunk. And so people say, well, Jesus turned the water into wine. Yes, Jesus turned the water into vine juice. But that does not mean that Jesus made an alcoholic beverage for people to drink and become drunk off of. So you don't need to be afraid of the word wine, all right? Uh, it's all good. You know what? I could go home and I could open up my uh, refrigerator at any given time and find Welch's grape juice. And you know what I'm doing? I'm pouring myself a glass of wine to unwind at the end of the day. You say, well, but pastor, that's not the kind of wine I drink to unwind. Well, you have yours, I have mine, and uh, mine keeps me out of trouble. Uh, by the way, I saw a report on the news this past week that came about and uh, uh, dispelled the old wives' tale that a glass of alcoholic wine uh, once a day is good for your health. That is not true. That is not true. Don't let anybody tell you that it is. It's not true. But this uh, here, look back at verse 2. In that day, sing ye unto her a vineyard of red wine, a vineyard of red uh, vine juice. This is a vineyard that is productive. This is a vineyard that is putting out uh, uh, greatly, greatly. Turn over with me to Revelation, I'm sorry, to John chapter 15 and verse number 1. 
John 15 and verse number 1. This is a productive vineyard, and we're told in John 15 uh, that we're to be part of a productive vineyard. And uh, figuratively, we're to be a, a vine connected to the branch of Jesus Christ. Look at John 15 and look at verse number 1. I am the true vine, and my father is the husbandman. Every branch in me that beareth not fruit, he taketh away. And every branch that beareth fruit, he purgeth it, that it may bring forth more fruit. Now ye are clean through the word which I have spoken unto you. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself, except it abide in the vine, no more can ye, except ye abide in me. I am the vine, ye are the branches. He that abideth in me, and I in him, the same bringeth forth much fruit, for for without me you can do nothing. If a man abide not in me, he is cast forth as a branch, and is withered. And men gather them, and cast them into the fire, and they are burned. If ye abide in me, and my words abide in you, ye shall ask what ye will, and it shall be done unto you. A productive vineyard. Listen, here's the, and, and there's, a, there's a lot in John 15, 1 through 7. You could do a series of sermons out of just this passage. But just a quick application before we get back to Isaiah 27. You cannot produce for the Lord fruit unless you are connected to the branch of Jesus Christ. You cannot do this thing called the Christian life long term in a productive way if you're not walking with God. You have to be connected into them. If I were to go into a vineyard and take a vine and snip it away from the branch, you know what? I can do my best to lay it back up next to the branch and make it look like it's connected. But if it's not connected, over time that vine's going to die. It's going to fall to the ground. A lot of people, they give the appearance that they walk with God. They give the appearance that they're connected. And to the generic passerby who's casually observing, you may look like you're connected to the branch, but over time, if you are not, you're going to wither up and you're going to fall to the ground. I'm looking around the room here. Brother Syrett, Brother Okai, to the deacons here, Mrs. Owens. You three, I think, have probably been in the church the longest of those in the room right now. How many people have you seen come and go? And I don't mean go to another church. I mean go out of church. And you know what? What happens is these people looked like, many of them looked like they were connected. But they weren't. The Bible says without me, Jesus said without me, you can do nothing. You cannot produce fruit for the Lord spiritually if you're not walking with Christ. You must walk with Christ. You must. If you're going to be productive for the Lord and you're going to be part of this vineyard that produces red wine, (coughs) if someone could get me some water, I'm having a very, very tough time here. I'd appreciate that. You must make sure that you're connected to the branch. Letter A, a productive vineyard. Letter B, we see a protected vineyard. Look at verse 2, or rather verse 3 through 6 of Isaiah chapter number 27. Verse number 3, the Bible says, I, the Lord, do keep it. 
I will water it every moment, lest any hurt it. I will keep it night and day. Fury is not in me. Who shall set the briars and thorns against me in battle? I would go through them. I would burn them together. Or let him take hold of my strength, that he may make peace with me. And he shall make peace with me. He shall cause them that come of Jacob to take root. Israel shall blossom and bud and fill the face of the world with fruit. Uh, what, what Jesus is saying, or rather what uh, the prophet Isaiah is saying here about the Lord, is that he is going to be the one that oversees it. Thank you so much. Give me just a moment, folks. All right. He's going to be the one that oversees it. Um, He's not going to let someone else oversee the vineyard. He's going to be the one that oversees it. And when the Lord oversees the vineyard directly, what happens is that no one's going to come in and sabotage this vineyard. No one's going to be snipping away vines from off any branches. No one's going to be hurting the flow. Um, uh, This is going to be handled in a way that's careful and correct and perfect. And as a result, Jacob or the people of Israel, instead of wandering from God and becoming a disaster like we saw in Isaiah 5, back in Isaiah 5, you have uh, the beautiful a poem about uh, the uh, the nation of Israel being compared to a vineyard, except it's a tragic story. It's a tragic story about how it becomes a, a vineyard of wild grapes and overrun. And, 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 and what happens is here, that's no longer going to be the case because the vineyard will be protected in the millennial reign by Jesus Christ himself. He will keep others away from contaminating or polluting or hurting. And Israel will blossom and Israel will bud. Look at letter C, a purged vineyard, a purged vineyard. Well, what happens here is that Jesus is going to have purged the vineyard of that which harmed it to begin with. Look at verse number 7. Hath he smitten him as he smote those that smote him? If we could all make sure our phones are on silent mode, that would be great. That way we don't have any more interruptions. All right, verse 7. Hath he smitten him as he smote those that smote him? That's a little wordy. I'm going to explain it in a minute. Or is he slain according to the slaughter of them that are slain by him? In measure, when it shooteth forth, thou wilt debate with it. He stayeth his rough wind in the day of the east wind. By this, therefore, shall the iniquity of Jacob be, notice that next word, purged, purged. And this is all the, uh, and this is all the fruit to take away his sin when he maketh all the stones of the altar as chalk stones that are beaten in sunder the groves and images shall not stand up yet the defensed city shall be desolate and the habitation forsaken and left like a wilderness there shall be the red uh, there shall the calf feed and there shall he lie down and consume the branches thereof when the bows thereof are withered they shall be broken off the women come and and set them on fire for it is a people of no understanding. Therefore, he that made them will not have mercy on them, and he that formed them will show them no favor. Now, 
I understand that for many of you reading that, that just seems like a bunch of jumbled up words and you have a hard time knowing what all that means. Let's back up and let me just make a couple observations here, okay? Look back with me at verse number seven, all right? The, this is outsiders asking if the Lord will punish the, the nation of Israel as he's punished other nations. Look here. Hath he smitten him, Israel, as he smote those nations that smote him, Israel? Will the Lord smite Israel the way he has smote nations that smote Israel? All right? Or is he slain according to the slaughter of them that are slain by him? Will the Lord demolish Israel and wipe them out the way he's wiped out other nations? All right? Look down at, um, uh, let's see, look down at verse number 9. Therefore shall the iniquity of Jacob be purged. Uh, the Lord says, I'm going to cut away all of those things that were detrimental and, and, and that, that hurt the vineyard of Israel flourishing and happening. You see there about cities being desolate and forsaken and, and fires being set. These are verses that point to the Babylonian captivity and the Assyrians coming in, spreading them all over the place. What is being said here is that, yes, Israel for a time is going to be spread uh, all over the world and is going to be hurt, uh, but Jesus is going to come back and through this purging, he's going to bring the vineyard back to place. Now let's look at some New Testament texts that will shine light on what we're looking at here. That'll be a little bit easier for us to understand. Turn over to Matthew chapter 21 and verse number 33. This is a parable that many people have struggled with. I think when it's put in context with Isaiah chapter 27, it helps us. Look at Isaiah, uh, Matthew chapter number uh, 21 and look at verse number 33. The Bible says, here another parable, there was a certain householder which planted a vineyard and hedged it round about and digged a winepress in it and built a tower and let it out to husbandmen and went into a far country. Okay, uh, So far, what we've got is a parallel between God establishing Israel and leaving it to the Levites to oversee their worship uh, to a, a, a man who's established a vineyard and turned it over to husbandmen. Look at verse 34. And when the time of the fruit drew near, he sent his servants to the husbandmen that they might receive the fruits of it. And the husbandmen took his servants. These would be the Old Testament prophets. Took his servants and beat one and killed another and stoned another. That sounds like exactly how Israel handled uh, the prophets. Verse 36, again, he sent uh, other servants more than the first, and they did unto him likewise. But last of all, he sent unto them his son, saying, they will reverence my son. This is the birth of Christ, the incarnation of Christ on earth. But when the husbandmen saw the son, they said among themselves, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him and let us seize on his inheritance. And they caught him and cast him out of the vineyard. And slew him. Jesus was arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane. He was arrested on the Mount of Olives. He was arrested near a vineyard. He was arrested, cast out of the vineyard, and, and slain. When the Lord, therefore, of the vineyard cometh, verse 40 says, what will he do unto those husbandmen? 
They said unto him, He will miserably destroy those wicked men, and will let out his vineyard unto other husbandmen, which shall render him the fruits in their season. Here is the transfer from Israel over to the church. Jesus saith unto them, Did ye never read in the scriptures the stone which the builders rejected, the same as become the head of the corner? That is, this is the Lord's doing, and is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore say I unto you, the kingdom of heaven shall be taken from you, Israel, taken from you, uh, uh, Levites, taken from you, religious sect, and given to a nation, uh, bringing forth the fruits thereof. I believe that means given to the church. Verse 44, And uh, what, uh, whosoever shall fall on the stone shall be broken, but on whomsoever it shall fall, it will grind him to powder. When the chief priests and Pharisees had heard his parable, they perceived that he spake of them. They perceived correctly. But when they sought to lay hands on him, they feared the multitude because they took him for a prophet. Now, uh, what happened uh, when uh, Jesus transferred things from Israel over to the church? He cut off Israel and that vineyard has gone wild. And one day Jesus is going to set up his rule and reign in Jerusalem and he's going to reestablish that vineyard. He's going to bring back the Israeli nation and bring back their their, uh, uh, prominence. Turn over to Hebrews chapter 12 and look at verse number 5. Let us never forget that God's chosen people are the Israelites. They are the Israelites going all the way back to Genesis chapter 12, uh, there was a promised land, and God promised that that promised land would one day be ruled and reign uh, by King Jesus, and uh, that is still going to happen, and Israeli prominence will one day happen again. Look at Hebrews chapter 12 and look at verse number 5. This is again written to the Jews. And ye have forgotten the exhortation which speaketh unto you as unto children. Hebrews 12:5. My son, despise not thou the chastening of the Lord, nor faint without a rebuke of him. For whom the Lord loveth, he chasteneth, and scourgeth every son whom he receiveth. If ye endure chastening, God dealeth with you as with sons. For what son is he? Whom the Father chasteneth not. Right now, God's chosen people, God's children, the Israelites, are under the chastising hand of God. They've been spread all over the globe. Yes, there is a nation of Israel now. Uh, Some of them have gone back there, but many of them are still spread all over the globe. And one day, they'll be brought home. That brings us to thought number three, Israel's victory completed. Israel's victory completed. Go back to Isaiah chapter number 27. And uh, let's, let's uh, finish with some really, uh, a really neat thought here. Look at chapter 27. Look at verse number 12. The Bible says that it shall come to pass in that day that the Lord shall beat off from the channel of the river under the stream of Egypt. And ye shall be gathered one by one, O ye children of Israel. All right, let me just pause here and say this sounds a whole lot like the parting of the Red Sea, Right? They're in Egypt, and they're going to be called out of Egypt. And the Lord is going to make a way for them through a river uh, uh, near Egypt, under the stream of Egypt, and he's going to gather them. Look at verse 13. It shall come to pass in that day, look here, that the great trumpet shall be blown, and they shall come which were ready to perish And look here, in the land of Assyria, and the outcast in the land of Egypt, and shall worship the Lord in the holy mount 
at Jerusalem. So one day, uh, uh, when Jesus is reestablished in Jerusalem, trumpets are going to sound, and the Jews are going to come from Egypt and Assyria and really all of the world, and they're going to ascend back into Egypt. Take your Bibles over to Numbers chapter 10. Uh, Two more passages, one that applies to Israel, and then one that applies to us, the church. Numbers chapter 10, and look at verse number 1. And and you could really spend time studying all of Numbers 10 if if you're a true Bible nerd and really enjoy that kind of thing. And I don't mean that in in a bad way. I am a Bible nerd. I did study Numbers 10 because I just enjoyed it so much. But look at Numbers 10, and um, look at verse number 1. This will at least get the thought uh, uh, rolling in our head. The Bible says, And the Lord spake unto Moses, saying, Make thee two trumpets of silver of a whole piece shalt thou make them, that thou mayest use them for the calling of the assembly and for the journey of the camps. And when they shall blow with them, all the assembly shall assemble themselves to thee at the door of the tabernacle of congregation. Now, we know from Israeli history that um, uh, at the camp of Israel, the camp of Israel was directed to blow the trumpets. This would happen once a year. This was called the Feast of Trumpets. Now, stay with me here. The Feast of Trumpets, the trumpets would sound, and people would begin their journey into Israel. Because of the trumpet sounding, it would call people from afar into Israel. Now, We know people a long ways away couldn't hear the trumpet, but the trumpets were blown because this was the command of the Lord. It was it was um, uh, it was symbolic of Israel being called. Now, the Feast of Trumpets prepared Israel for the annual Day of Atonement, also known as Yom Kippur. And the Day of Atonement prepared Israel for the Feast of Tabernacles. Now, you ask, what was the Feast of Tabernacles? Now, I understand that to you and I, we're not culturally in line with the Feast of Tabernacles. We're not culturally in line with the Day of Atonement and uh, the Feast of Trumpets. But we're trying to understand Isaiah 27. So stay engaged with me here for a moment, okay? The Feast of Tabernacles was had to be a picture of the joy of the millennial reign of Christ. So they blew these trumpets. It called in Israel. They would begin to prepare themselves so that they could uh, uh, they could uh, uh, celebrate the coming kingdom where Israel would reign supreme. One day, the trumpets are going to blow again in Jerusalem. And people who are in Egypt, in Assyria, and all over the world, Jews, will come in and they'll know, uh, uh, listen for the trumpet, Jesus is not only coming, he's come. And and they're going to gather there in Jerusalem and celebrate their king. Now, uh, we, the church, are also listening for a trumpet. We'll finish the message here. Turn over to 1 Thessalonians 4. 1 Thessalonians 4, and we've given the interpretation of the passage now let's look at an application that applies to me and you. First uh, Thessalonians 4. I just have to tell you right here, right now, some of you have a hard time hanging with me when I'm going over Jewish customs and things. I understand that. You know, it, I would love to just Americanize the whole Bible. I would love to do that. But that would not be honest to the passage. I would love to just make it all about us. You know, sometimes the Bible ain't about us. Sometimes the Bible's about people other than us. And, and we need to make sure we understand what the Word of God is saying. And, and, and we need to interpret it properly. And then on the heels of that, we get to make an application for us. Look at 1 Thessalonians 4. And look at verse number 13. All right? It says, here Paul is speaking to the church. 
to the church. He says, but I would not have you to be ignorant brethren concerning them which are asleep, that ye sorrow not, even as others which have no hope. Paul is writing the church of Thessalonica, who is sad because uh, those who they love have already died. And uh, they're not understanding what happens after death. And so when you see the word asleep, that means asleep in Christ. Dead would be our term, uh, uh, but he uses the word asleep for a reason. We'll see here. Look at verse 14. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so them also which sleep in Jesus will God bring with him. For this we say unto you by the word of the Lord, that we which are alive and remain under the coming of the Lord shall not prevent them which are asleep. For the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel. Look here, look here. And with the trump of God. There's the trumpet. There's the trumpet for the church. And the dead in Christ shall rise first. Then we which are alive and remain shall be caught uh, up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so shall we ever be with the Lord. Wherefore, comfort one another with these words. One day, the trumpet's going to blow. We're going to hear it. And there's going to be two stages to this. First, those dead in Christ are going to come up out of the grave. They're going to come shooting up out of the grave. You say, well, like holes are going to be left in the cemeteries? I don't know. Maybe. That's possible. I don't know how it's going to work, right? But we know this. The dead in Christ are going to rise again. And then shortly after they rise, we're going up with. And not in this passage, but in another passage, it says it will be at the speed of a twinkling of an eye. How fast can you blink? Some of you here, your eyes have been closed for the last 20 minutes. You haven't blinked once. Um, amen. How many? How fast can you blink, right? Um, I, it's been, it, the, the, the timing of it has been measured before. I don't remember what it is. It's just a fraction of a second. You say, is it going to hurt to get raptured up to heaven? Nope. Nope. You're going to, faster than you can blink, or as fast as you can blink, you're going to go from here to up there. I've always said, I hope I'm playing basketball. I'm going up for a layup. And the rapture happens, I'll dunk it on my way up. Amen. It'll be the only time this white boy's ever dunked basketball. So um, uh, that'd, be, that'd be great. Um, uh, but uh, I hope uh, Jesus is coming soon. Jesus is coming soon. And listen, uh, listen for the trumpet. Jesus is coming for us. And that'll be a glorious day. We'll lay all of our struggles and sin problems and uh, the... Um, uh, the the uh, sin curse will be left behind and we'll get to worship with Jesus and each other forever. Amen.